Welcome to the Beer Healer Interviews. I am your host, Chris Lukianenko, and I scour this big brand land of ours, looking under fermenters and behind mash tuns to find the best beer stories to share with you. The Beer Healer Interviews is now available on all major podcast services. If you like the show and want to help out, can I ask you to simply rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast service. Just leave a few words and a rating and the podcast gods will do the rest. By doing this, you'll help others to discover the show more easily and hopefully get more people interested in this great industry that we call craft beer. Well, now that we've jumped over the 100-episode milestone, I feel like it's time to spread my wings and every now and then take a look a little further afield to find great stories from beer to share with you all. So today, we're heading to Glenwood Springs, Colorado to explore further the art of brewing and blending. When I told one of my industry friends who plays in the same sort of field as my guest today that I was going to chat with Troy Casey from Casey Brewing and Blending and had he heard of them, his reply was, of course, they're blending gods. Upon further research within the Aussie industry, it seems that his opinion was shared by many others as well. Casey Brewing and Blending was started in 2013 by husband and wife duo Troy and Emily Casey, and they brew and blend beers using local ingredients that ferment in oak barrels. Have I got your attention yet? Good. Because to tell us more about it all, welcome to the Beer Healer Interviews, Troy Casey. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Very excited to have you on today, mate. Absolutely. No, you you were that's uh you that was uh, far too uh, gracious of an uh, uh, entry into this conversation. <laughs> no, no, mate. Seriously, you, from what I've been told, you are considered to be one of the best at what you do. And I know that you know many of the home and pro brewers that listen to this podcast will be absolutely hanging on every bit of technical knowledge you may drop today. And uh, I've got to give a shout out to my mate Will Tatchell from Van Diemen Brewing who helped me with uh, a few of the questions that I'll throw in a bit later on that will give some of those listeners what they want because uh, what you do is quite complex and there are a lot of people that want to know more about it. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm happy to share. Yeah, can't wait. Awesome. Well, let's get into it. So um, so you're called Casey Brewing and Blending, and I'm not sure how many high-rise uh, uh, buildings there are in Glenwood Springs, but let's pretend you walk into an elevator and someone asks about your business. What's your elevator pitch? <laughs> we... Um, we make, uh, barrel aged, uh, like oak fermented farmhouse style beers using local Colorado ingredients. Oh, absolutely nailed it. Nailed it. I'm just wondering, was it always going to be a fate to complete that you would get into beer? Because that was kind of the family trade via your dad, wasn't it? Yeah. My dad, uh, has been in the brewing industry my whole life. Um, he had a, a PhD, a PhD in applied microbiology. He did his postdoc in Carlsberg. Um, in Denmark, and that's where my brother was born. I was born yep. in Canada while he was still doing his uh, graduate school, and then he he had uh, stints at Anheuser Busch, um, Red Star Yeast, Stroh's Brewing in, in Detroit, and then he finished his career up uh, at uh, Coors in Golden, Colorado. And you yourself, you studied chemistry at college. Was that always about heading towards brewing, following your dad's in your dad's path? Yeah, no, it wasn't actually. I uh, I knew I loved science. You know, growing up, I, I knew my dad was in the brewing industry. I, I really thought nothing of it. It was alcohol and beer specifically wasn't really um, on my radar yet. And I just knew I liked science. And so I started my degree at UCCS, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs um, in biology. I failed my first biology test. And so I switched my uh, major to um, chemistry or fit a little bit more, but you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. I, I knew I didn't want to do um, like a, uh, 
like a medical or dentistry path. I didn't want to really do lab work. And so I really didn't know what to do. So when I was 20 years old, my dad told me he could get me a job as a tour guide at Coors. And uh, I thought, hey, I get to do tours, talk about beer um, with a bunch of co-eds. I was like, yeah, sign me up for that. And it was doing that that I realized that I could use my science degree to become a brewer. Um, and then I came home one day and I said, Dad, I, could, I think I could do brewing um, with my chemistry degree. And he was like, yep, let me show you how. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Straight into the homebrew shed from there, was it? Um, yes, it, it was. I, uh, when I turned 21, I uh, got a job at the local um, uh, brewery, Bristol Brewing Company. I got paid $8 an hour um, in beer credit. So I would save up money to buy a keg. And I would, uh, we would throw parties. And I would sell cups to make a little little bit of cash. Oh, um, and during that time, I did start my first homebrew. And I didn't taste it through the entire process. And I con- even convert, went as far as to convert our the fridge at my house, the house that I was living with, with a bunch of guys. Um, and I put the beer on tap. And it was so bad. I dumped <laughs> the whole thing out. And that was the only... Homebrew, I had I did for a, a couple of years. Oh, really? Yeah, it was that bad. It was awful. I mean, I I knew nothing about actually brewing. I mean, I, when I was working at that uh, that little craft brewery, I was greening out. I was uh, you know greening in. I was doing all the, the brunt work, the grunt work. Um, and so, like, I I didn't know anything about brewing besides what I probably learned from. Um, I, I can remember where I learned how to brew at that point in a book, maybe. And so, yeah, it was, it was awful. Like I didn't taste the front. That's the biggest takeaway from, from that experience was you have to taste your beer every step of the way and know what you're doing every step of the way to to make sure that you're not wasting your time or, um, or, uh, or any of our money in the, in the process. Yeah. (laughs) I also dumped out my first ever uh, batch of homebrew beer, but uh, I think your career is sort of taken off a little more than my brewing career. (laughs) Well, now that you, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but, now that you now that you mention it, I think I just used um, like dry malt extract. None of these things are bad by themselves, but when you combine all these mistakes together, I think it makes for a, a great recipe for disaster. But I, I used dry malt extract. I used dry yeast that I probably didn't rehydrate correctly. Um, I probably didn't boil it properly. I I'm, I guarantee. Obviously, my sanitation wasn't um, where it needed to be because it went sour. And uh, which is, I guess, ironically, my the first batch of beer I ever made was went sour. I guess never thought of that, but that's uh, kind of <laughs> fortuitous. Tor- yeah. And uh, um, no, I just did everything wrong I possibly could. So when I went to grad school at University of California, Davis, yes. I I, re- I really learned how to make beer. Was the pipe of foam uh, leading the the course there at that time? He was absolutely Charlie Manforth. Yep, the pipe of foam. <laughs> nice. Two things. What, did you consider him a mentor, uh, you know, upon reflection and, and have mentors been important for you during your craft beer career? Yeah. Mentors have been really, uh, really uh, important. Um, Charlie was definitely a mentor from the brewing science aspect of things. I mean, that's where I really um, learned about brewing science. Um, Charlie, I remember one of the first, uh, I've got so many little, uh, you know, phrases and things that Charlie had talked about over the years. One of them was, Somebody asked Charlie if he ever homebrewed, and he was like, "Of course not. If <laughs> if I was a brain surgeon, would I go home and practice on my wife?" 
Like, <laughs> so Charlie was not a brewer. He was a brewing scientist and that's not a dig. He, I, I mean, he is and should be proud to say that he's a brewing scientist. Brewing is so like, especially large scale brewing is so much more important than just a recipe. A recipe is really easy. Anybody can figure that out. How do you make the same beer um, in multiple locations taste the same with with ingredients that vary, if not month after month, like water would, but year over year, like like hops and grain do. So so Charlie's expertise what expertise was in brewing science uh, still is obviously. Um, so yeah, Charlie, learning brewing science, that's where I really got my, my background and, uh, what makes me a strong brewer, I think, is learning the science. My dad, the same way, learning, uh, my dad's career, if for those who don't know him, is, um, really in troubleshooting, um, problems in, in large scale brewing. So things like, uh, like I kind of mentioned with Charlie, but it, even more so with my dad, um, my dad working for Anheuser-Busch, you take one yeast strain, and you send it to 12 different breweries in the United States, how do those breweries make the same beer, the same brands taste the same over all 12 of those locations? Working at Coors, when you have different water, different everything, um, different uh, fer fer fermentation um, geometry, like how do you make the beer taste the same in all those locations? I mean, that's where... Uh, you could spend a lifetime learning that. And he had what's called fish bones, um, which are kind of notorious in these brewing science, uh, the brewing scientist community, which is like little things go positive or negative when you're trying to affect this flavor compound or um, this sensory comp, this sensory flavor. And so my dad, Charlie, um, were, were easily from the uh, science side of things, but then uh, learning how to actually make beer um, make recipes, doing the craft, the hands-on stuff. I have plenty of those mentors. Rate, review, and subscribe. Three words that strike a chord in every sensitive 44-year-old podcaster who dreams of telling stories of craft beer. And something that I talk about a lot, but it really can get this little potty into more ears and therefore grow craft beer for all of us to enjoy. So even if you listen elsewhere, if you've got an iPhone, you've got Apple Podcasts, and therefore you can help out the show. Those three words, rate, review, and subscribe. This is going to be a great interview today. I can, I can just tell. Hey, um, you sort of jumped in and out of cause over the next few years in various different ways. And I'm just wondering, as a, as a guy who's worked on both sides of the line in terms of independent versus big beer and having a, a father who worked in big beer most of his um, career, how do you see them these days? Are they seen as the enemy to you or or is it sort of more that, you know, you see them as someone who trained you up really nicely to have an opportunity to start your own thing? You know, I can never um, I can never fault um, big beer for, for a lot of reasons. When I first, I mean, A, my dad, when I when I was three or four, you know, my dad, my family, we were, were we were eating because of Anheuser-Busch. They were the reason that our family moved to the United States from Canada. Um, and you know, so we skip forward to today, these big breweries, they're, uh, you know, international businesses that have operations domestically and, uh, domestically in the United States, they employ a lot of hardworking Americans. Um, so I get it. Um, they, you know, they're, it's not small business, but they still employ a lot of hardworking Americans. Um, it's not, 
necessarily where I always spend my money. Um, I still enjoy a nice Budweiser or a nice Coors, um, especially when my dad's there. Like I'm happy to do that. Uh, so I'm not like super anti um, these big brewers. Uh, you know, if I was a bigger brewery who was competing for the, with these breweries for shelf space, or yep. if I saw them every day trying to uh, steal my shelf space, I'm sure I would have a different opinion. Yes. But we're so far away from um, like being actual competitors that it's, a, it's really easy for me to say that. But at the end of the day, they employ a lot of uh, hardworking Americans. And, um, you know, some of that money goes overseas. I get that. But, uh, but so does everything else, you know, a lot of other stuff. And so not everything, a lot of other stuff, if I can clarify that. And every consumer has to make their own choice with what they want to support. Um, and, uh, yeah. Great. I, I love the way you look at that. Cause I'm a, I'm a little bit the same having worked in it myself. I, I still believe there are great people in there. And I think that sometimes is lost when people get a little really angry about what big beer does there, at the end of the day, there are still great people inside those massive companies. For sure, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, look, you as I said, you you work for Coors. The, the beers that you make these days, as you said, are a long way from what comes to mind when people mention Coors. At what stage did you have, I don't know, a beer epiphany and think to yourself that you wanted to start brewing with fruit and, and bacteria and, and oak barrels and stuff? So when I was going to grad school, um, there was only two of us in the uh, master's program at that time. So we were doing our master's in food science. It was myself and a guy named uh, Jonathan Goldberg. Um, Jonathan Goldberg had way more experience than I did in the industry, and he had plenty of experience in recipe formation. Uh, so we brewed um, every chance we got on the UC Davis little uh, five-gallon uh, uh, brewing, brewing system. We would brew all the time. Um, we, I think we had, a, when I left, we had, at least in uh, relative, like, Relatively modern times in 2008, we brewed the most on that little five-gallon system um, compared to the few years before us. We were just brewing every chance <laughs> we got. Um, and I was learning at the time about how to make cool recipes. So by the time I left, I had a pretty good idea of how to make you know, craft beers, like good craft beer recipes that people would want to drink. And so talking about a mentor from the, from the recipe development standpoint, Jonathan was hands down the first one to, to do that with me uh, that I would consider for me. And when we left and I got a job at Coors, so 2008, I got a job as a pilot brewer at Coors and we basically had free reign over the 30 barrel uh, pilot brewery in Golden, right? So a 30 barrel system was the pilot brewery in Golden. It's pretty <laughs> crazy to think about. Yeah. That I'm, yeah. That I'm brewing on a seven barrel commercial system and, at the time, it was a 30-barrel uh, pilot facility. Pretty <laughs> crazy, crazy. Yeah? <laughs> So where is, where is Jonathan Goldberg these days? Uh, he's, he's working in the uh, distilling industry um, okay. up in, uh, I think he's in British Columbia. Ah, right. Oh, nice. Yeah, so he, nice. had, he had history in uh, distillation. He went to Harriet Watt before he went to UC Davis. So he was quite the, uh, quite the uh, experienced brewer by the time he got to Davis, way more than I was at the time. <laughs> so I interrupted you. Get back to that, uh, that small little 30-barrel system you were talking about. Yeah, so the small little 30-barrel <laughs> system. So we would do everything from um, qualify a new recipe of Coors Light with the, uh, with the new um, hops that were coming out that year or a different malt variety. Um, so if you think about it from the, a very simplistic but yet incredibly 
financially significant standpoint to, um, hey, we want to brew a, a amber lager or we want to brew um, an IPA or something like that. We would have access to doing that. And so in the five years I was there, I really got to, uh, I've said before, I don't know, I got 20 years worth of experience um, in those oh, five wow. years because of how yep. much we were able to experiment with different recipes. And at the time, they had a employee bar in Golden. So we would always put like, we would brew, we would brew 30 barrels of beer of work, excuse me. And we would ferment 10 barrels of it. And we would bottle maybe just two kegs, excuse me, package two kegs. Uh, and this is, I'm showing how far, how long it's been since I've really been on the production <laughs> side of things. My, the last few years, it's really been about, um, I've been focused more on growing our business and that's where my, um, more, where my needs, uh, have gone. So I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, embarrassing myself with, rusty. <laughs> uh, how I used to be, but, uh, so we would package just a little bit of what we actually fermented, uh, which was a little bit of what we actually brewed. Um, but it would go on tap and we would get feedback from people and we would just go from there. So we really had, I got, a, I got a long, many, many years of uh, experience in just a short five years with brewing. So, but you still were brewing what you would so, say, you know, average normal craft beers. There was no real, you know, thrown in bacteria or thrown into oak barrels or adding the fruit at that stage was there, or was that sort of the next step for you? You're brewing these beers that were sort of the next step above a cause light more interesting beers. Then you thought, I want to go a bit further. And is that sort of how you came across all these different, uh, let's, let's call them wild ales or, or sales or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. So we, yeah, we started out with uh, kind of getting a passion for brewing lagers because we had, obviously we had a lot of access to lager yeast. And yeah. so we started experimenting with different lagers um, and styles, historical classic styles. And then we switched to using different yeast strains to make those. So more, um, like Augustiner, Ondex type yeast uh, strains to make these classic German style lagers. We had some success with them at um, the Great American Beer Festival and even the World Beer Cup. And um, it was at that time I kind of got into sour beers. So when I was leaving UC Davis, uh, Northern California, I had found out about Russian River Brewing Company and I knew that their beers were, were very good and they were hard to come by. I had no taste for them yet, but I bought wow. some of them um, at a local uh, liquor store to bring home to give to some other brewers uh, on the front range of Colorado that I knew would appreciate them. So I brought oh, them right. home. I kind of stuck them in my closet and uh, I got them one day. I went to my local uh, liquor store and the beer buyer was like, you have to try this. He was he was literally hand selling me. Cantillon classic goose right? <laughs> at this time in like 2009, he had to hand sell Cantillon. That beer just sat <laughs> on the shelf and I tried it and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is delicious. This is great. And it was kind of a rabbit hole from there, just going down the line, yeah. trying other different beers. And then eventually realizing I have some of the best American made sour beers just sitting in my closet. closet. <laughs> and um, so naturally, you know, you buy everything you can and then it's like, well, I got to try brewing this myself. And so we did. And, uh, yeah. And then from there, yeah, it's crazy. I'll, t I'll take a, I'll, I'll take a breather until we go down that story. It sounds funny that, uh, you talk of Cantillon being your, your gateway drug into the sour beer world. 
Yeah, it's nuts, right? Can you think, imagine, I mean, I ha- it was, it was hand sold. You have to try this. Uh, okay. I'll take a, I'll take the risk. I'll try, I'll try this based on, you know, what he said. And then like <laughs> for the next couple of years, I was driving all over the front range buying whatever Cantillon I could find. Like it was just that good. And I knew how, you were that how rare it was for sure. Oh, wow. Uh, it's also, and then all of a sudden, yeah, okay. You've had your epiphany and you, this is what I want to do. Uh, when you were at back at, at school, you're obviously very passionate about, you know, the science subjects, but did someone somewhere advise you to take maybe a few business subjects that, you know, might be handy for when you start your brewery? And as you said, you know, you're, taught, you're doing a lot of the financial and planning things sides now, but, you know, to help you get the, the whole thing off the ground initially? No, not at all. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I, I thought I was going to be a, a company man like my dad was. He spent his whole career... <laughs> Um, with big brew, with big big breweries, and he had a great life. We had a great family. Um, you know, he, he we we I couldn't imagine a better life, and that was given to us not only by my mom's hard work and her careers, but my by my dad um, working for these big brewers with great health insurance, great retirement packages, and I was like, that's where I think I'm going to go. Um, oh, fair and then yeah, that changed. And then uh, at some stage, you thought about setting up your own brewery. What what was the whole concept, the pitch for for Glenwood Springs initially? So when we, uh, um, so while I was making these sour beers at at the at the Coors, they you know we were we were showcasing them at certain events and people were tasting them and we got I got a little bit of a a little bit of hype on the local beer advocate forum about what we were <laughs> doing and we were I it sounds like we people thought we were doing them well and I thought we were doing them well and uh, at the time. Um, it was kind of uh, a bunch of things that had happened. Um, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, she had moved up here to Glenwood Springs in this valley, which we're about half an hour from Aspen in Colorado. And she got a job with Whole Foods up here. She got a great promotion to come up here from Denver. And we, so I would start to come up here every weekend and we just fell in love with this valley. So, uh, at the same time in at Coors, the the tides were changing with what what was the potential for these types of beers that I was making. You know, I could tell that the the people that were working there at the time that you know were passionate about what I was doing. The higher ups, you know, I remember going to a meeting one day and just seeing how deflated that person was about uh, you know a little bit of the styles of beers that I was making. And I remember going to my dad, like, oh my gosh, you know, all these promises that were being made, like just that, yeah, you can do this on a bigger scale or even at the same scale you're doing it, we're, we're kind of gone. Um, there was a big culture uh, fight between Miller and Coors. You know, they joined, uh, had a joint venture right after I started in 2008. And uh, um, one culture, I won't say which, one culture cared about the beer. Uh, <laughs> one culture cared about the politics and them and and uh, and themselves. Miller, <coughs> one the one the culture that cared about the um, about themselves and and self promotion, they eventually won, and yeah. the beer was second. And uh, that was kind of at that point I was like, okay, I really don't want to be here. And I've been making these styles of beer that a aren't very widely available in Colorado to the way that I can make them. And um, there's an option for us to kind of uh, make a business out of this. And so it was a perfect storm of, you know, I'm young and dumb. I didn't really want to be a Coors anymore. 
And my girlfriend at the time was living in a gorgeous part of Colorado. And it's like, okay, this is, if there's ever a time to do this, here we go. So uh, we made a jump. We picked Glenwood Springs. It's, it's about an hour from some of the best produce in the whole country, the best fruit in the whole country. There's a lot of places that have great fruit in, Col- in the United States, but Colorado's got great stone fruits, great peaches, apricots, nectarines, uh, specifically among many other things. So it was close to uh, some pristine growing areas um, in Colorado. Sounds pretty awesome. I, I haven't been to Colorado yet. I've been to the States quite a few times. Uh, Colorado is on my bucket list for my next trip on whatever the hell that may be. But Awesome. Uh, yeah, anyway. come on out. <laughs> uh, so describe for us the facility that you set up. You, you're a tap room, but initially you you weren't a brewery, were you? Yeah, correct. We found a uh, an old CrossFit gym. So it was this industrial building. Um, right on the river, a really famous river in Colorado called the Rolling Fork. We're right on the river. Um, it's There's no foot traffic. It's kind of outside of city limits. And um, it was either going to be a CrossFit gym or a marijuana growing operation. And we came in <laughs> with uh, with an offer. We got the lease. And so it's a big building. Um, it's built into the side of the riverbank. So it stays very cold, even in the, su- in the hot summers that we have here. Um, at the time, like you said, we did not have a brew house. We would buy wort from a different brewery. Uh, they, they would make our recipes with our ingredients. We would then um, trailer it back to our facility and we would do all 100% oak fermentation and aging um, before then it was naturally bottle conditioned uh, and then eventually sold. So why, why, what was the attraction to oak initially? It's magic. Like oak is magic to me. You can take the same... <laughs> wort and put it in different barrels um and you get you can you can get different flavors that come out of um two different barrels that have the same inputs into them you know like the 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 barrels like let's just say even if you take two neutral french oak wine barrels you know neutral means a lot of things to a lot of different people so you can get different flavors from the barrel you get get different flavors depending on the thickness of the staves right Mm -hmm. like so like the day that that cooper was going to build that barrel. If he had a good morning or a bad morning, you know, he's going to make that barrel a little bit differently than if he had a good or a bad morning, you know, uh, differently. And so like you get different stave thickness gives different amount of oxygen ingress, which creates different flavors. And so there's just magic in these styles. Like even today, um, I was tasting different barrels and I was like, Oh my gosh, these are so good. Like I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. It's just that, like I'm still so passionate about these styles seven, almost seven years after starting this business as I was when I first started. And it's because there's always stuff that can be different. Um, you can get different flavors using different yeast strains. Um, but oak specifically, that micro oxidation that occurs from the aging and the open fermentation specifically that I believe we do, um, well, that we do do that get the flavors that I believe are important. I mean, it's just the sky's the limit with the flavors you can get from these styles. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later. But um, what were the initial beers that you produced out of Glenwood? So the first beers we did were Saison, uh, which was just obviously our farmhouse style. Saison, uh, which was made with local um, 100% Colorado ingredients, so local barley and wheat, local hops, um, yeast that came from a local supplier, and then Oak Theory, which was a our interpretation of um belgian style sour ales 
So we would yep. use, it was not turbine mash. It was not spontaneous, but we would use raw wheat and malted barley, um, aged hops, and then uh, kind of a cocktail of different yeast cultures to try to duplicate um, lambic specifically. So you started off pretty quietly, but very bloody quickly, things got a bit crazy in terms of people trying to get hold of your beers, didn't it? Your reputation just skyrocketed. Yeah, like when we first, when I first announced what we were going to do, I mean, I think we got like a like the night that I started the Facebook page for Casey Brewing and Blending, I think we got a thousand followers that first night, and so that was pretty um, pretty cool at the time. Yeah, and that's all well and good, but you know, we're four almost four hours west of Denver, um, the big <laughs> population center in Colorado. And so the, I was just really nervous when we opened up in, uh, what was it, July of 2014. Was it, would anybody come up? And luckily, a few people did. Like, literally a few people. We had, uh, <laughs> we were open July 3rd and July 5th with only one brand, just Saison. And we had, I don't know, between those two days, we probably had, if we had 80 people, I think I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I think I'm, yep. I'm, I'm remembering it uh, optimistically if we had 80 people in those two days. Um, and so we had a few people that came out, which is great. That, that uh, Monday morning, I was up at 5 a.m. And I was emailing the some people, some liquor stores that had reached out wanting to sell our beer in the front range in Denver, Fort Collins area. And we sold everything at that point. So we sold all of our first month's releases at uh, that we didn't sell to the public. We sold through wholesale. You know, I was able to pay myself like $500 that month. It was great. And, uh, from there in August, we released the same beer again and we had even less people. So we had more wholesale and it was like, okay, well, it looks like we're going to need to make some fruit beers. So we were already in the process of making some fruit beers since what we do takes a long time. We had, uh, we had gotten some cherries, um, from Colorado that year, early uh, summer 2014, we had some sweet and sour cherries. And in September of 2014, we announced we were selling three beers. We were selling batch three of Saison, and then we were selling our sweet cherry fruit stand and our sour cherry fruit stand. And we had a line. We had When I showed up that morning at like 9 a.m. and we would open to the public at 11, we had a line of people that had already, if they bought everything, had, had sold out already. Oh, so wow. um, that's really when the craziness started. You thought, could be onto something here? Yeah, 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 this might work out. Okay. <laughs> and things kind of continued along those lines of being a little bit crazy. And then in, I think it was, I don't know what time in 2015 when Rate Beer said that you or rated you as the best new brewer in America. Did that just make things go ridiculously crazy? Now all of a sudden you had an entire nation of beer lovers knowing who you were? Well, I'm going to sound like a jerk, but I'm going to correct you. We 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 won the Rape Beer Award for best new brewer in the world. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Oh. I, I, it's my own. It's like the only award we've ever won. So I'm the worst. <laughs> I'm the worst for, researcher for correcting you. It's we uh, we don't have <laughs> no. we haven't won a lot of awards. So I'm I'm going to uh, <laughs> stick by that one. Um, yeah, but I'm I was sorry, walking. Mate. I was walking my dog, and uh, Connor um, Casey from Cellar Maker had just uh, announced us since they had won that same award the year before and he had just announced us that we won that. Um, and, uh, I was like, Oh, that's pretty awesome. So yeah, no, it was great. Yeah. I mean, even at that time we were, um, we were still, we were only doing monthly releases. We were having to figure out ways to either pre-sell the beer before people drove up. Like we didn't, we, we had people camping out in our driveways, 
on those mornings and uh, we had people fighting over <laughs> spaces in line. So we were trying to figure out all the different ways we could to um, make it more uh, stress-free for our customers. Yeah, that was a crazy time for sure. I did hear stories of uh, beer nerds in sleeping bags <laughs> on your premises. Oh yeah, yeah, that definitely, that definitely happened. Yeah, and what's really funny is that we had, and we still do, a, um, uh, a motion light right there in the driveway where they were sleeping. So not only were they sleeping in our driveway, but if they moved a little bit, I think the motion light would have turned on. So yeah, it was probably really miserable. <laughs> we, so you've, uh, you've organized this tap or you've put together this tap room in, in Glenwood Springs. And one of the unique things about your tap room was it had no taps because it was all about these large format bottles for you, wasn't it? Yeah. We, at the time we only did 750 milliliter bottles. Um, that was partially because we were doing it. I mean, when we first started, it was literally me and some help that we had every once in a while. So, um, my wife, uh, well, my girlfriend at the time would come or fiance back then would come and, um, help, you know, press cherries or break up cherries. My parents came up and helped bottle the first blends. Um, my parents would be washing glassware during our releases. So when we first started, it was, I was the only employee and I mean, employee is a really loose way to say it because I was barely being paid. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty nuts. So yeah, but also, so besides the fact that we needed to bottle that, you know, if we were to bottle them 375s, we would, it would take tw- almost twice as long and yeah. t- cost more money. And so we were like, we're, we're only going to put these in 750s at a time in the industry in the United States, specifically when the demand for these 750s was really fading. People were just putting, starting to put beer in 375s. Um, we still do beers in 750s. And I believe it's because I think they age better. I think our okay. beer, any beer, like of this of this caliber deserves to be shared, um, and it just tastes better when it's shared because yeah, you're nice. engaging with somebody, you're talking, you're pontificating yeah. about either the beer or anything else, and that just makes for a much better experience. So, um, if the market demand dictates that we have to change, we will. But so far, we haven't had to. And yeah, that's when we started. We were doing no draft. Um, it was just those uh, seven yeah. milliliter bottles. Maybe that's the key to have them, you know, remaining relevant in what is a very can-dominated uh, industry these days. It's that the romantic side of uh, the, the beer, perhaps. Yeah, it's not the styles that we make. Um, and again, this is all based on consumer demand. I know a lot of other breweries that have had to switch to, um, you know, canned sour beers, and yeah. thankfully we haven't had to yet. Our beers are naturally bottle conditioned. They spend almost sometimes more time in the bottle before we sell them than they do in Oak. And oh, we let yeah. the beer tell us when it's ready. And so it's just way more, you know, it's that what our whole method is old, old world brewing and, and doing yeah. it in Oak, um, naturally bottle conditioned, you know, I think it has to be in glass and who knows if, if and when that'll have to change. But for now, we, we have, we have no sign. We're not even close to thinking about 375 milliliter bottles, let alone, um, putting our sours and cans at this time, but it's 2020. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, it was working because you know how the really pointy end craft beer lover likes to get hold of of the whales and the hard to find beers. I'm going to put this to you because I think you sound like a pretty smart bloke. I'm going to say that you very very cleverly made your beers instant whales. You had limited production capacity. You needed to do a tap room um, tour to be able to actually buy your beer at, at that stage. And your tickets for those tours were very scarce. So, boom, instant whales, you clever bastard. 
<laughs> I mean, I, you know, in hindsight, you might be able to, I can, I can see why you would say that, but at the time <laughs> it was, um, it was totally different. We had, uh, before we started doing the ticketed tours and tastings, we would have a limited amount of, 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 uh, of beer to sell every month. And, you know, we had the majority of our consumers were not in our local area. They were driving three plus hours to get to us. The last thing in the world we wanted was for people to be stressed out when they were buying. Um, so we would do, we would sell when they were driving to try to buy beer. Like that's the worst thing in the world. So like, yeah. I can't remember when we would offer them, but we would do, we would sell tickets for $20, which went to a charity that was different every month. And if you bought that ticket, you would be guaranteed a, 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 the max out of the beer that we had available that weekend. You didn't have to buy it. You could buy one bottle if you wanted to, but we were guaranteeing that you would get it. So if you bought that online, oh, right. then yeah. you knew you didn't have to rush up. You could be there for a certain hour yeah, uh, between a certain set of hours. Yeah. You would get that beer and, and then whatever was left over, then we would sell to the public. Yep. And so yep. it truly did a rate. Like we were, it was just me and making it. We started this business. I started the business with a, a, a silly small amount of money and we just slowly grow, grew it from there. So like, I totally get like, you know, if you were to do like a case study, like you kind of just alluded to um, <laughs> of rarity, like that's not what we wanted at all. Those, <laughs> the reason we stopped doing those monthly releases was because it was killing me, the stress, um, uh, you know, waking up at 6 a.m., having people text me about there being fights in line. Like I just couldn't do it. So I gave up that hype potential um, (laughs) and made the beer a little bit more accessible um, for, for, from a quality, for a quality of life uh, gain. I was taking the piss. Uh, do you know? Do you know the saying "taking the piss" in Australia means making fun? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was taking the piss, but it it kind of worked, I think. Um, but I was also thinking, was the whole system and what you were doing at the time maybe actually more about educating your consumers and building your brand uh, reputation, um, sort of as a byproduct of those all those sales? Because you got people to come up there, appreciate the surroundings enjoy their day, not be rushed, have a chat with whoever was on site to talk about the beer and therefore, you know, we've really been educated? I don't know. I don't know if I've ever, I've ever thought of it like that. Um, <laughs> I'm a deep thinker. <laughs> no, it's great. It's a great question. Uh, you know, I totally, first of all, I totally knew you were, you were giving, uh, I would say you were giving me shit. So yeah, um, that's how we would say it. I totally understood that. I just wanted to kind of clarify my side of, my side <laughs> of the story. Um, and I'm going to try to work in taking the piss out of you into my everyday language here. Do that. that's, a, that's a great phrase. <laughs> um, you know, it, it honestly was, it's just, I mean, that's what I loved about the beers that we were trying at the time. Like I loved hearing the story about Cantillon who, um, at, the, at this time, before we started Casey, we had, I had been to Belgium once my wife and I had been there. Um, on a business trip when I'm back when I was working at Coors and I convinced my boss to let me bring uh, my girlfriend at the time, Emily, uh, obviously, like I said, now my wife. And what we fell in love with was the family stories. Like we fell in love with the, like Cantillon, they named it after their family. Um, Giardin, uh, Bone, uh, Hanson's, it was all named after the family, right? Like your name, your family name stood behind your brand. Um, so like now to this day, if you have a problem with our beer, I mean, that's not just the problem with the beer. Like that's a problem with our family. Like I'm putting my family's name on the line, my dad's name on the line. I'm putting my, my son's names on the line. Like if I were to, 
lose integrity with what we were doing. That doesn't just affect me or our business. It affects everything. So yeah. by calling it Casey, we, that's really why I did it. Because we wanted to show the consumer that we were really not only family oriented, but we stood behind what we were doing. And doing it small batch was really legitimately out of necessity, but also because to me, that's, I think that makes the best beer. You could take, you know, we make around 500 uh, barrels of beer um, a year. If we were to scale that up, if somebody came in and wanted to scale that up, you could take the same recipes, but it's going to taste different. I don't care who you are. Hey, I don't yep. care. You have all the brewing scientists in the world. If you take that and you scale it up, it's going to taste different. You know, forget about the economics of that as far as like the, you know, supply and demand issue. If you take that away, yep. it's going to taste, even if you take that away, the beer is going to yeah. taste different just as when you do it small, taste the way it tastes. If you try to replicate that on big fermenters, big fooders, just massive amount of barrels. Like you just can't do it the same way you can if you do it small. So we're doing it at the same volume. Our volume hasn't grown um, significantly uh, over the last four years, three years, I'll say, because I know that for a fact. In fact, some <laughs> years it's, it's decreased since 2017. Yep. Uh, and um, that's out of, that's just because we're making the best beer that we possibly can. We're, we're, I'm terrible at business because I have never taken a business <laughs> class uh, at a school. And um, I'm just trying to make the best beer I possibly can. And then we, you know, we live by that. We die by that. So we mentioned before, early on, you didn't actually have your own brew kit. It was all about the fermenting, fruiting, aging, and all that sort of stuff. What was the tipping point that made you decide to bite the bullet and, and put in your own brew kit? We got to the point where we were brewing or getting enough brews um, that it made financial sense to do it. Um, there was also a quality reason to do it. We were starting to have... Um, uh, quality issues with one of with some of the suppliers you know they they didn't care about our um wort as much as we would and so we we saw some yep. loss in with a couple batches with that and then um we switched over to a great brewery that i love in edwards colorado called bonfire brewing company and um, they were brewing on a 20 barrel system so for us a 20 barrel system was just too much work to get at one time. We couldn't really take any risks. We were we were in love with what we were getting, but we just couldn't really um, take any risks with with a twenty barrel brew because if if it went bad, we were just uh, you know SOL. So we were we had enough we had we had enough uh, justification from a business standpoint that we could get our own facility, get a seven barrel brew house. We could um, take more risks. We could uh, experiment more. Um, which I thought would ultimately lead to uh, better beer. So did that change the types of beers you were brewing or you just that control element more? We still brewed the same, like the same recipes that we were brewing at, uh, at Bonfire, but then we switched it up. So we've been, we've been brewing, um, experimenting more with, uh, with different late hopping, different like hoppy style uh, recipes, different ingredients. We probably dump more beer now than we did back then because we're taking more risks. But uh, when we do have a success, you know, it really, it pays for itself after a couple batches for sure. You you have so many different series of beers. What is, what is considered core cool range for you guys? Oh yeah. Like you said, it's always changing. I mean, we've got different <laughs> um, base beers. So we've got our uh, Saison, we've got Funky Blender, which is kind of a, a different late hopped. It's got a Colorado late hopping to it. 
um, and then different yeast cultures, which kind of make for some interesting flavors. Um, we've got East Bank, which is our um, honey farmhouse ale. So it's got local honey in it. We've got, uh, geez, uh, those are probably the three big ones right now. And then yep. a lot of different one-offs um, that come and go. Then we do, do different fruited levels for all of those. And yeah, like you said, we've got a lot. And uh, we're, we're always experimenting, trying to figure out what we like. And then hopefully the cons- consumer likes it as well. You mentioned before about the the whole idea around the magic that the, the oak barrels bring to this. I'm just wondering whether maybe you can explain the comps, complex relationship of, of flavors you're forming with the liquid, the hops, the yeast, uh, the fruit, and then and then time in those magic barrels, um, you've got a different sort of wort base for each of your your different streams, and then you've got all those other elements creating this magic. Is is there somewhere that you could sort of you know a dummy's guide to to what you're creating so that people that might be doing this at home can sort of understand the concept a little bit more, perhaps? For sure, it's the idea that. Um, this is how beer used to be made, right? So before the industrial yep. revolution, before um, lager yeast was isolated and um, uh, kind of made to taste the same all over the place, the people used to make beer with the ingredients they grew or what was grown near to them, um, the farmhouse style of brewing. That's really what got me excited about this in the yeah. first place. So you were limited with what you had and you had to make great tasting beer with what you had. And that's what got me excited was that there was obviously in 2014, there was amazing sour beers being made, but they weren't being made um, locally uh, as well as I thought they could be or to the volume that um, customers were demanding. So we started out with the idea of making the best tasting farmhouse beers because we love the acid. I love acid and beer. And we wanted to use local ingredients and really showcase what Colorado had to offer. So by taking malt, malted barley, malted wheat, raw wheat, raw barley, a bunch of other grains that were grown from people in Colorado um, whose names we knew. We, we've met them. We've shook, shook their hands. I like we know that. about their family. Same thing with, yep. with the hops. Same thing with the yeast supplier. And then obviously the water, we know where that's coming from because it's right by where we live. We see it flowing by us every day. That idea, um, and and then adding fruit on top of it, which is a no-brainer with these uh, sour style of beers, um, makes, and then you're at your events bottle conditioning, right? A whole other set of magic. Yeah, Uh, You take a great tasting beer that doesn't have any carbonation, and then you have to bottle condition it. You're doing another fermentation, like a tertiary or yep. what's the what's the one beyond that? I can't even, I won't pronounce uh, it. Quad, quad, quad something airy. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I would have said. So they can make fun of you for saying that. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, um, I mean, then like that is a whole other element of magic is just that one fermentation uh, of the bottle conditioning process. You take, you make terrible flavors, but you get carbonation and you have to wait for those flavors all the other yeast and bacteria in there to reabsorb those flavors and kind of have a party together. And then everything comes up perfect. And that takes two weeks sometimes, or that takes two years sometimes. And so um, it's really just like, that's the magic of all those things. But by putting together that um, all the the best ingredients that you can possibly get, but the most important ingredient is time with these styles of beer is time. You can't rush these products. And that's why we've really grown in the first place is so that we don't have to feel rushed when we want to release a beer. We can pick and choose nice. from what we think is tasting best at that time 
Um, and then if it's not perfect, we can let it wait another month or two or even never sell it if we don't love it. So how long do your beers actually stay in the oak barrels for? Uh, anywhere, like for most of our farmhouse beers, um, anywhere from four to six months probably to start, okay. sometimes yeah. longer. Um, and then uh, Oak Theory, which is our Belgian-style sour beer, that's usually at least 10 months. Uh, we haven't released oh, wow. that in a while. Um any of those blends with those uh, with those base beers because we haven't really enjoyed with how we're making them. So um, they kind of come and go, and, and we'll we'll find, we'll pick and choose barrels that we love. Like I found a barrel the other day that's a barrel of Funky Blender. It's about six months old, I think, and I'm just in love with this punching. Right, so it's a 500 liter barrel. It just tastes so good, and I can't imagine that barrel being any better if we were to blend it. And oh. so I'm like, we're going to let that just keep aging. Let's give that a okay. we'll taste it every month and kind of see where that goes. But we're going to let that go and see what kind of complexities we can get by itself. Because yep. I couldn't add anything to this barrel, in my opinion, to make it taste better. Um, That's cool. And so those, those barrels are few and far between. So when we find them, we're, uh, we're pretty excited about them. Yeah. I'll, I'll jump on to blending in a second. But I want to ask you about the fruit that you put into your beers. Is there some kind of sterilization process that you have to go through before you, you use it? Or are you sort of just chucking it in there hoping for the best? I'm tipping you not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, we don't do any um, any sterilization at oh, all. None. Uh, oh, not Not once. Never once have we done that. Um, so we'll get, we, uh, up until just a few weeks ago, we've only ever used um, whole fruit. And uh, so it could be, so we use, Whole peaches, whole, I mean, so the fruit we use that's grown in Colorado, peaches, nectarines, plums, apricots, apriums, yep. pluots, blackberries, cherries, raspberries, uh, currants, uh, grapes, pears, um, apples. I mean, there's there's so much fruit that's grown on the Western Slope. And any, any of those fruits that we use, we don't ever uh, do anything besides sometimes freeze them just out of necessity. Okay. So we'll freeze yeah, cool. berries and cherries because they freeze really well. So we can use those in the off season. And then yep. when the fresh fruit is coming in, like apricots, um, peaches, nectarines, plums, we can use those uh, at the time Straight up. and uh, yeah. kind of focus on making those at that time. I've heard this uh, term thrown out before, um, aseptic fruit. Is that what you're buying? No, we literally buy whole fruit. We Just buy water. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. So we'll go to farmers, we'll find farmers and we'll buy whole peaches, whole nectarines, whole apricots. Sometimes we buy the entire crop of uh, apricots. We bought, we, we, last year we bought the entire apricot crop from one farmer um, in Western oh. Colorado that was 12,000 pounds of just apricots. And <laughs> nice. so they pick them just like they would for their wholesale market. They'll do it specifically for us sometimes. So we'll, if we'll say, you know, we, we care all we care. They're like, when do you want the beer or excuse me, when do you want the fruit? delivered and i'm like you tell me like i care about flavor so you pick that fruit oh. when it is at the prime flavor ripe flavor great flavor if that's a sunday morning at 6 a.m that we have to be there to receive this fruit we'll be there if it means it comes on a tuesday at 2 p.m great here's your check and if that fruit ripens on sunday morning then we're there uh processing that fruit because we're using the fruit at the peak of its flavor. So we'll, we'll get the yeah. fruit from the grower. It usually takes a few days to ripen um, to our level of uh, quality that we want to see. And that's when we'll process it. So summers are very tough. 
Summers yep. are long days. Summers is where you, uh, you know, you earn your paycheck. Um, <laughs> at, at Casey, summers is where you stress your relationship out. Uh, yeah. because we're, we're at the mercy of the fruit. Speaking of relationships, how important are they with your local suppliers to develop those so that you can, whether it be your, your what we say, apricot suppliers or uh, or your, your malt or whatever, like that's really becoming a key thing here in Australia is developing these little bespoke relationships with your suppliers so you can, you know, get the absolute best out of your ingredients. It's, it's the most important thing. I mean, because we can get, you know, great, great hops, great barley, um, obviously the water, those are all grown pretty, pretty, uh, prolifically. Um, and we know those, the companies and the people that are making those and, and they want to sell it to us. Fruit's a whole other characteristic here in Colorado. We, uh, apricots are really hard to come by in, um, most years because apricots bloom very early in the season. Uh, I'm sure I'm telling you something you already know, but apricots bloom very early in the season. No, I'm learning. Season. I'm learning. Okay. <laughs> They're very susceptible to late season frosts. So the fruit can bloom in uh, April. It'll be tr- tr- uh, growing, thinking everything's great. In the middle of May, the temperatures can get down to the mid 20 degrees uh, Fahrenheit and um, the whole crop will be lost. And that's what happened this year. Yeah. Um, so this year we had multi- many of our growers lost not only their entire crop of apricots, but all of their fruit. Oh, shit. was wiped out by these late season frosts. And so um, global warming is a bitch. And yeah. the uh, so it's really hard. Apricots aren't grown very much in Colorado, so they're hard to find. And so you have to be willing to a, uh, develop those relationships. So we go out and visit these growers all the time. We're texting them uh, when these these nights are about to happen. We're letting them know that we're, you know, we live or die by their crop the same way they obviously do. Uh, and um, that we're hoping for the best for them. And then we also have to put our money where our mouth is. So we pay a lot for fruit. Um, yep. In some cases, we pay more than if you went to the local like organic grocer. We were paying more for local fruit um, than you could buy it for from an organic grocer. But that's because we want to support local. We're passionate about we're knowing where our, uh, the fruit comes from. We're passionate about um knowing that our purchase is making a difference in that difference in that community. Have you seen as the relationship with your um, suppliers improves and is fostered, have you seen the quality, the complexity of the flavors in your beers increase as well? Definitely, because every year yep. they are growing the fruit more to our standards. And that's more so from a harvesting standpoint in my opinion. So every year we can tell them like, "Hey, you know, we had this issue with the fruit. So maybe the level of fruit that they were giving us, you know, maybe we didn't buy the whole crop, but we could say like, hey, this year we want to see more of this. Um, these, this fruit took too long to ripen when we had it at a room temperature. So can you let it, you know, if it works for you, can you let it sit on a tree a little bit longer? That grower has other issues like pests, wind, um, whether they can knock that fruit off the ground, they're going to lose money. So they have to harvest it at a at a good time for them, and I get that. But the, these op- this communication that occurs, and that growers realizes you're you're writing them a check for a significant amount of their income every summer. Um, I mean, they they listen to you, <laughs> especially if you're if they're growing something that you could find elsewhere. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So I've been told that you ferment at ambient temperatures with these beers. Does that mean that you only brew certain styles of beers at certain times during the year, or is it what you said before about 
you know, your building's built into the riverbank, so it's pretty much a constant temperature all year round in there. We've done a hand, like maybe literally less than 10 batches of a spontaneous brew that we've tried with, uh, you know, with the cool ship. So those have been brewed um, yep. specifically, obviously, during the correct season. Um, yep. We've never released those yet. And uh, but for the for ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the beers that we've made, um, we brew those year round, and okay. that's what we love is the complexity that we get from fermenting a beer when it's seventy five degrees uh, Fahrenheit in our cellar versus sixty degrees. Um, you know, so we get different flavors at different times of the year. We love that for blending. Um, our customer loves the differences that subtle differences that can come from those different types of years. Uh, speaking of blending, it's obviously a massive part of what you do. Well, I think the process of blending can be taught, but I feel like the art of blending is something that must be learned from within. And I don't want to sound like a wanker, but you're, you're harnessing your sensory awareness over time and and understanding how flavors complement and contrast, almost like, I don't know, learning to play a musical instrument or something. It's There's something romantic about it that, so you've got... The process is one thing, but actually harnessing that power for good is is something completely different. Do you do you agree? Yeah. So yeah, a hundred percent. The uh, blending is you're basically it's a it's one of the most um, selfish parts of the job in in the sense that you have to do it for what you like. Like there's no substitute for trying to blend to the masses or blend to what people want. Um, you have to do it, especially if your name is on the company. Uh, you have to blend for yeah. what you want because that's what people are buying. And so we're known for um, making beers that are on the lighter um, uh, spectrum of acid. We definitely have some blends that are very high acid, but we're known for making very approachable, drinkable, acidic style of beers. Um, and blending is one of the most fun parts of my job, but it's also one of the um, the last things that I get to do because it's one of the things you have to do um, when all the other business type of stuff is done. So when I get to actually put my phone down, turn the music off and start pulling nails from the barrels to actually get to taste, it's it's the best thing in the world. Nice. You, you do make it sound very romantic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And you can't, uh, like you said, you can't, you can't teach somebody that. Um, it just takes time to say like, yeah. okay, this, because it's there's so many different types of flavors that are occurring when you make a blend, and your um, so you can try you could you know if you had the time you could taste a bunch of different beers, but not only from an alcohol standpoint is that um, limiting. It's really your palate. Your palate change is gets fatigued. At least mine does very quickly. So when you when we're tasting, we have to be very intentional with it. We have to be tasting the same types of beers. So we're not trying very completely contrasting flavors of beers. We use a bunch of different yeast cultures, as we talked about. You can't taste all these different yeast cultures at a same blending session um, necessarily because your palate is, you can't trust it after a certain amount of time. So you have to really be, um, what we do is we'll taste the base beers. We'll take notes. We get ideas of what we want, and then we'll give us our, ourselves some time. Maybe it's uh, uh, you know after lunch, or maybe it's the next day, and then we'll come into that next blend session with some ideas of what we want to do. And uh, because you can't, after a certain amount of time, you just can't trust your palate. Um, and so there's the yeah, I've heard other blenders say say the same thing actually that it uh, does get fatigued. Yeah, absolutely. You, you mentioned the yeast. 
uh, is obviously a massive part of this. What what about the yeast that goes into your beer? Is it a proprietary mix of, of cultures, or how's it go? Yeah, we've got a we've got a house culture that we uh, have isolated at uh, a couple of different um, yeast banks here, and so we have a blend of different saison strains. We've got some uh, Brett strains and then some lactic acid in it too. It's uh, it's 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 really not that. Um, not that not as secretive as you as a lot of people would think. It's really just the way you make it. Like I said, we make beer with small batches, oak fermentation. It's it's a it's a combination of um, of how we make of how we make the beer that makes the flavors that we do. I remember talking with um, a brewer that makes amazing um, German lagers here domestically, and he talked. He was talking about all the different. Um, old world, old method styles of German lagers. And I was like, is that really needed? Is that really needed? And he's like, well, no, maybe that one thing's not needed. But if you put all of those together, the combination of all those things is making a better product that you couldn't get any other way. And I really think it's the same thing with how we do it. It's all the the, the small yeah. things we do really combine to um, escalate uh, the flavors yeah. that we're trying to seek. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Brett, you like to brew a bit. With uh, with Brett, from what I've I've seen, uh, even have a series of beers called Brett Loves, and when you throw in different hops, have you got any tips for brewers looking to get into working with uh, Brett? Not really. Um, we we made those beers. I don't think we've made those beers since probably 2016. Um, I love I like Brett. I don't love Brett. I love the flavors that it makes okay. um, with other things. I love the fruitiness that we get from our saison house called saison different yeast strains. Um, so I'm not a, uh, I'm not an expert on Brett. Um, I like the addition that it makes to our, our culture. Um, you know, I, I would say add acid. If you're going to make a beer with hundred percent Brett adds lactic acid, um, because Brett by itself, I think is very, um, you know, funky farmhouse goat, goaty, you know, it's like, uh, you either love or you hate a, uh, um, some of those funky cheeses that to me, my wife loves a funky cheese that to me smells like uh, you walk into a, a elephant zoo, like the elephant uh, part section of the zoo. It's just incredibly <laughs> funky to me. That's the, that's the flavor I get. But if you were to add that with some fruitiness that would come from a Cezanne yeast culture and then definitely some acid to help bring that um, complexity up a little bit and drinkability. I think acid is great for drinkability. It's uh it's why it's you know beer's acid, wine's acid. You need acid for drinkability and um, and many different types of uh, alcoholic beverages. So uh, I would say add acid. I mean, we we always added some uh, acidic beer to uh, those blends that we did for Brett Loves, but we haven't made them in a while because you know honestly they sell great for us. So um, that's kind of uh, my opinion on Brett. It's important. Well, there you go. You do you do have tips for those looking to brew with Brett. <laughs> there you go. So uh, you mentioned earlier that you've um, done about ten beers in in cool ships. Is that somewhere where you want to take this whole thing and get into some of those really funky wild ferments out in the the fields of <laughs> the hometown or something? I guess uh, I'll say I always loved Allagash's uh, spontaneous program. Um, I think they're they were one of the first uh, um, domestically to do that for us. Um, obviously trying yep. the, all the Belgians, but to see what we could, what potential we had domestically was amazing. Russian rivers, beatifications. I remember dry, uh, flying to, um, Russian river, waiting in line to buy those beers in like 2011, maybe in 2012. And 
Um, then we, I tried some other American uh, spontaneous beers and I was like, holy crap, we might be able to do this. So we built a cool ship room um, almost three years ago and we had a cool ship. We got the wood ceilings. We had the fans blowing the air in and uh, we've had two seasons with that. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. It's, uh, we haven't released anything yet and, uh, we'll see what happens, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm only going to have a release beer that I absolutely love. I've tried some beers that have been sold as American, you know, Colorado spontaneous beers that I, I wouldn't sell. Um, and so we're going to, uh, we're going to wait and see if we can make something that I think is as good as, um, some of the, like Allagash, if it's not as good as Allagash, why, why would we sell it? Oh no, yeah, that's um, good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with yeah. that. If, it's, if we can't meet or beat Allagash's complexity and flavor, you're not going to see it from us. We, I think we can we make really good sour beers, but if we can't make um, world class spontaneous beers, you won't see it from us. No, that's good call. Um, you obviously do create amazing beers, but have you ever put a fruit into a beer that just did not work? Um, a fruit by itself? Uh, uh, I'll clarify. So, yeah, sometimes we have. But not, it wasn't the fruit's fault. It was the base beer's fault. Oh, so right. sometimes we put a, a, a fruit onto a beer that um, maybe didn't go well with the base beer. Um, and to a bigger extent, sometimes we've um, had fruit that might not have been the best uh, flavors. So a couple times we've had grapes that have we've gotten that uh, we, we didn't like. And we, we dumped, we dumped the beer that we got off those grapes. So I remember one time, um, we had a great beer that we just didn't absolutely love and we were dumping it, but I was really, I was still questioning my decision to do that. And I literally poured the beer was, the beer was being dumped into the drain. I, I grabbed a glass and I, I pulled from the, the hose as it was going into the drain. And I was like, just one more time, like, is this really as bad as I think it is? Maybe it's a different part of the, the tank. Maybe this doesn't taste bad. And yeah, it did taste bad. So we, we, we kept dumping it. But yeah, sometimes we just get, um, you know, maybe a bad crop of fruit. Sometimes we get fruit from a grower that we, um, you know, are kind of taking a risk on and it doesn't ripen to the level that we want. And the risk, the two things are you either dump, you know, a little bit of fruit that you don't love or you put that onto a beer that has taken six or eight months to mature and then you don't love that beer. So like, where do you take the loss? Yeah. And we'll just throw that fruit into uh, our um, compost bin and uh, and just move on. We'll, we don't use that grower again. But uh, yeah, it's there's big. I mean, our beer is not cheap by any means. It's 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 expensive to be honest. And but part of that is because of uh, these levels that we yeah. go to to uh, quality control that, that you're getting the best thing. Yeah. You can get. Um, if anybody ever brings you some uh, durian fruit from Malaysia, don't put that into a beer. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's a joke, kind of a running joke on our uh, um, beer club's uh, Facebook page, talking about durian, yeah. Well, I've spoken to Pastor Street Brewing from um, Vietnam on this podcast before, and they did do a durian beer, and they could not get the smell out of the stainless steel keg. Are you serious? <laughs> dead set, dead set, yeah. <laughs> I think they ended oh. up chucking the keg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At the opposite end of the scale, what fruit beer blend has been your crowning glory in your opinion? Oh man, I think, uh, you know, apricot beers are just so much fun to make because, um, of how challenging they are. It's, it's challenging to a get the apricots. Um, it's challenging to, uh, you know, have a season where, um, they, 
developed and to the quantity and flavor that we're looking for. But then it's also really hard to ferment them. They bring so much acid to the base beers that uh, we've had many um, problems bottle conditioning them because of too high acid. Uh, so when we add the yeast for bottle conditioning, they just kind of uh, fizzle out. Um, so I think anytime we can get an apricot beer to carbonate, I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> but then it's, it's really always just every, it's, it's all, we're all, I'm always excited about the fruit beers that we have because it's so, everything is so seasonal. So as soon as we get that first organic peach blend, organic nectarine blend, um, the plums, like, you know, if you follow our social media, I think every summer I'm probably talking about how excited I am about this, you know, this, this batch of fruit that time of year, because the flavors we get from these fruits are just amazing. And so it's really hard not to be, um, super passionate about everything that we're doing. So, um, you know, if I can, if I can narrow it down, we, we off, we've recently done a lot of different fruit blends. So adding different fruit fruits together, just like we do with different base beers, different flavors, like that's always really fun. Um, it's really fun to add vanilla. We've been doing a lot of vanilla um, beers lately. So adding uh, vanilla to these different fruit beers just gets flavors and yeah, different nice. types of uh, perceived sweetness that you can't get any other way. Those are really fun as well. And so, I mean, if I, if I, if I were to say one thing, I think um, it would, I would have been lying earlier when I said this is what I love about it is how magical it is <laughs> because we're, I'm just constantly um, excited about the different beers that we're making. Nice. It's, it sounds awesome. Um, so, so a few years back, two or three, whatever it was, I think you opened your second tap room, but this time actual beer taps. Is that right? That's right. We've got, we got uh, 18 drafts there. So we've got about four or five uh, tap line, draft lines that are dedicated to um, some of our uh, farmhouse beers. Yep. Um, we've started making IPAs and stouts lately. I saw that. And then we've got a bunch of different uh, guest beers as well. So I saw you recently released um, a barrel-aged stout there, and I went back to try and find some stouts on in your beer archive on your website, and I couldn't find any, but um, I did see some photos on your Facebook page of some dark beers. Is that going to be something you're going to dabble in? Yeah, definitely. So we, when we started making these uh, you know, non-sour beers, um, I don't know, a year and a half ago, we uh, start, we started making different stouts. So we when, I think the first one we did was called Stout Tribe, which was done with microphone, a collaboration with microphone brewing out of Chicago, Illinois. And uh, so that was with vanilla, with whole Madagascar vanilla. Oh, nice. um, we've done uh, some collabs in, the, in that same realm with Weldworks. Yep, so that. Out of, uh, of Greeley, Colorado. We've worked with um, uh, a few other breweries in the, in the, in the States to make these, you know, so-called pastry stouts. <laughs> yep. Um, and styles that we, that our brewers like, we like, I mean, I've, I've brewed, when I was back at Coors, we were, we, we made um, many barrel-aged stouts. We, we won some award, we won one award with a, a barrel-aged stout when I was there. Um, and so we've, I've done this before and uh, I've really let our brewer, our uh, head brewer, Eric Metzger, kind of run with these types of styles. So he's really taking the lead um, on these IPAs and different types of stouts. And uh, so it's been really fun for our brewers to get to do those kind of things. And then that really allows me to f- continue to focus on what I love the most, which are these uh, fruited yeah. sour beers. It's, it's pretty cool too because you're not only giving your, your brewers something to keep them interested with some of these different styles you're doing. I noticed you also did a double IPA recently. But it's opened up your world to your collaborations too because I'm assuming that collaborating over a, a, a blending, a blended beer project is a lot more difficult than a, 
you know, getting together to brew a, a West Coast IPA or something. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, collaboration. I think the you know as a whole for uh, for me is is really about learning from each other. Yep. Um, so you're not just trying to to get some sort of brand awareness from the other person or um, or learn something. You know, those those that those obviously do occur. But for me, it's finding somebody who's who's like minded, who has the same type of um, idea of why they're in the industry. You're not just trying to profit from somebody else and you're really just trying to learn from each other. That could be finding a certain type of squeegee at a brewery you go to <laughs> or, or seeing something really stupidly simple that that brewery does that would make your life a whole lot easier. Or it could be um, you know, learning a little bit about recipe development or recipe formulation on, on a style that you're not familiar with. And you have mutual respect with that brewer that they know you're not, that they're getting something out of it as well. Yeah. And it's not just uh, all take, take, take. There's give and take on both sides. <laughs> I love that. Uh, next time you recommend somebody to, to brew with, say, a world works, so why, why should I brew with them? They've got great squeegees. Oh, I've got the best squeegees. You want a, you want a good squeegee person? You want a good squeegee guy? I got the squeegee guy. <laughs> That's awesome. Mate, I've, I've probably taken up way too much time of your time today, so we better start wrapping this thing up. So I'll just leave you with a few quick questions to uh, to end the interview. Um one thing, how important has family been in this whole journey for you? Uh, I mean, the most important. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we got uh, my parents lent me some of the the majority of the money to to start this. Yep. Um, they were there when we first. My dad was there when I first brewed. Um, my brewed when we first brewed the first batch of wort on our um, partner brewery system. My dad and my brother were there when we first brewed the batch on our our own brew house. Um, my brother came in from uh, Japan to do that. Um, my mom was washing glasses. My dad, you know, all this was pre-COVID, but my dad would come and do tours. He would come and say hi. He, even to this day, we've got customers that come in and bring a four-pack of beer, and they write on it for Greg Casey. Oh, like, nice! Like they they know they have to say that, or else it's gonna those loggers are gonna be drank <laughs> by somebody. That happened literally today oh, because that's of awesome. COVID. You know, you know, I'll I'll drink those beers. But, uh, but, you know, it's the thought that counts. And, uh, you know, my wife is, um, is so involved in the business now. She, she manages our uh, marketing and branding. My brother-in-law is our brand manager. My sister-in-law manages our new tap yep. room. Um, I mean, it's, I could go on and yeah. on, but yeah, that's the most important. Thing. I was, I was going to say, you know, they've been so important. You should name a beer after them, but they're all named after them. We've, I have, we have, we've named some beers after my dad, my mom and my wife, but you guys have, they've never been sold, ah, um, right. but they're sitting in their, uh, in their cellar. But they're, so we've, but they're we've all named that. after them. Cause they're all called Casey. I get it. I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. yeah. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, what have you learned in the last few years that might lead you to change how you started this thing out? And if you had your chance to take your time over, would there be anything? Oh, you got to give me a minute with that one. That's a great question. <laughs> Um, I, I would say, you know, we have to, uh, double down on, on staying small. Um, and you know, there's every year there's more and more breweries like us that are, um, that are, that are coming up and that are making phenomenal beers. And, um, we have to stick to our roots, which is really small batch, um, you know, hyper local, hyper quality, uh, beers that you can't get anywhere else. I mean, that's what people, why they spend why people spend as much money as they do on our brands is for that reason. Yeah. And so the minute that we were to, um, you know, think we could, you know, expand massively or, 
or do something that, you know, we've seen uh, people do in the past that kind of backfires, you know, consumers know they, they, you know, real recognizes as real. And if we uh, deviate from that at all, it's a, it's a slippery slope. And so for me, I've learned we have to stay true to those roots um, or else it could all uh, change way quicker than we would ever imagine. I like that. Real recognizes real. Sounds like uh, Dame Lillard game recognize game. That's awesome. Yeah, I think uh, I think I was I've seen that a black I've seen blacks black thoughts say that. <laughs> yeah, on the roots. Real recognizes real. That's so cool. I think that's where that's I got cool. That from. So what's on the what's on the horizon for Casey Brewing and Blending once uh, COVID blows over? Oh man, will that ever happen? Yeah. Oh man. Um, the uh, we you know we're looking forward to international travel again. We were yep. supposed to be in um, Brussels this year. Uh, for uh, uh, taking some of our staff after two years, we take our staff members to um, to Belgium and kind of show them where, what we fell in love with. Nice. And uh, we we missed that trip this year. We've uh, been after when COVID hit, we were selling a little bit more beer internationally. So we would do like you know half a pallet here, half a pallet there. Um, and uh, you know we'd even we'd love it to make it down to your area with some beer. It's just like oh, I haven't seen it out here yet. Yeah, yeah, not yet, but but soon, hopefully. We've we've sent some beer to uh, Japan, yeah, cool. um, and uh, where my brother lives. And so we would love to do some traveling events. Just uh, you know, send twenty cases somewhere, um, kind of like how Cantillon is doing it, where, where they distribute a little bit all over the world. We'd love to do that to a much lesser extent, but use that as an excuse to travel, especially as our boys get a little bit older. Um, yeah, so nice. Kind of what we're looking forward to and, and uh, just being able to hug people, I guess, when they come in. <laughs> yeah, the simple things. Yeah, well, if you ever do make it to Australia, I reckon there's more than a few brewers that would love to uh, sit down and share a, a, um, a wild ale or a sour beer with you for sure. No, we'll do it for sure. And uh, my final question for you today, mate, are you still getting dudes in sleeping bags on your special release days? No, we're not. They're, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe they're, but, but as uh, you know, we've switched a lot of that to online sales. Yeah. So we have our, our membership club and uh, we'll do releases on, um, if you're in our club, we'll do those uh, once a month, uh, uh, yep. like Monday at 9 a.m. So maybe they're not in sleeping bags, but they might be buying the beer from their, uh, from their <laughs> bed. So that's what I like to think is happening. And is that how popular you are now? Because I noticed, whether it was this week or last week or something on your website, that you are taking applications for membership. Is that right? Or to, yeah. to join the inner family, I think it was called? Yeah. So we have we have a certain amount of spaces that, you know, since our beer is so limited, um, we do applications. And so we ask for like your name, um, your email, and then just to tell us a little bit about your uh, experience with our brand um, to kind of, uh, you know, should we get more applications than we have space for? We read my wife actually, and uh, and me a little bit. We read those applications and try to pick the people that um, you know might have had certain uh, experiences with us, as opposed to just somebody that's signing up. Um, so we try to get the people that might be, uh, have spent the most time with our brand as we can get. So we're not trying to be elitist or anything like that. We're just trying to make sure we get the people that are the most passionate about our brand as possible. So. Um, that is awesome. Yeah. I've never heard of that before. You know you've made it and that your beer is popular when you've got to take applications to join the membership club. <laughs> yeah, this, it happens in the wine world, uh, but that's more from okay. a financial standpoint. They're, they just want to know how much money you're going to spend. We don't, we don't ask sure. that. We just want to make sure if you've, if you've met us before, if you've drank some of our beers, it, it's not crazy. It's like you've had our beers before. You know, it's not. We just are trying to get the people who said, I've, I've, I've been there in those release days, as opposed to somebody who says, I've tried your beer once. 
Um, you know, yep. if it comes down to those two people, we only get the one who's, in, you know, put in a little bit of the effort as opposed to the person who. It's it's uh, the uh, the person who's more engaged with your brand as opposed to the wanker who's just trying to chase a beard and put it no, on Instagram and say, I've got a. I, I know you. I know what you're saying, and I don't want to come off like that. We're we're thankful for anybody that wants to try our beer, but oh, yeah. we're trying to uh, we're trying to we're, we're trying to do our best to make sure we can get um, uh, the most passionate uh, customers uh, taken care of. You're the only person I've ever heard say they had people sleeping in sleeping bags to get their beers. So I think people are loving you. Okay, I appreciate that. <laughs> That's so awesome, mate. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed today. We've gone well over time. I apologise for that. Um, but uh, yeah, just your insights into the world of uh, brewing and blending um, have been sensational. And when my mate Will Tatchell said that you're a a, uh, a blending god, I, I now know why he used, chose to use those words. So thanks so much for joining me today. It has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much. This was really fun, and it's interviews like this that keep me uh, keep me going on those uh, blending days and making sure we're trying to make the best beer possible. So thank you so Great much. Great stuff, mate. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have an interesting beer story and want to be a guest on the Beer Healer interviews, send me a message via my Facebook page. And once again, if you want to help out the show, a simple rate and review on Apple Podcasts or a follow, like or share on any other podcast service will do the trick. I'll catch you soon.